welcome back to the Med School Tutors Podcast, your resource for high-yield tips and proven guidance to help reduce stress and give you tangible tools for success from pre-med through residency and the boards. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Know Thy Shelf Neurology webinar. Um, my name is Michael Trainer. I am a first-year neurology resident at UCSF. I've been working with MST as a step one, step two, and shelf exam tutor for about three years now. I'm obviously very excited for this webinar to talk to you about my favorite field to teach and to practice, which is neurology. I'll cover some general study schedule tips, some resources, categorizing them, help you figure out what's good in review, some of my personal recommendations, some mistakes that I will commonly see right in studying neurology and approaching neurologic disorders, and then generally talk to you about med school tutors and everything that this amazing team can do to help you as a med student succeed throughout med school. All right, so just generally wanted to talk about like the team that I referenced of med school tutors. We have over 14 years of experience, and so uh, tutors from medical students to residents to career physicians who provide one-on-one tutoring services really for any topic that you can think of across the entire continuum of medical education. Lots of experience. Like I mentioned, I've been doing this for three years, worked with lots of different students from all over the country, as well as international students. And each of your tutors is going to be someone who has excelled personally on these exams and can provide you with their own experience and help you figure out your own personal success story. So I wanted to dive in. I know that this is a really interesting time to be a medical student, one in finding the field that, that speaks to you, but also in what the clerkship is going to look like. So I'm going to talk kind of briefly about what I would say to you as a resident in what I would want a medical student to do in communicating to me, and then hopefully cover what I imagine would be the majority of a neurology clerkship experience for students on this webinar. I think what's the most helpful thing to me is as a student, if you introduce yourself let me know what's important to you, what you hope to get out of the rotation. I think that students will often fall in the trap of being like, oh, I'm on this rotation, so I have to tell you that I want to do this field. I think we're all well aware that you know only about 3% of students go into neurology. Obviously, I would love that number to be more. But if you are entering a different field and know that you're entering a different field, it's still really helpful to know what your goals and objectives are so that I as a resident can help you meet that. And it's the same thing about working with a tutor, right? What are your goals and objectives? And then you can engage that other person to help you meet those goals. The next thing you're gonna hear kind of consistently throughout all of your rotations, right? So see patients, ask for lectures, and then set time aside to get your questions answered. I think that this kind of lends really well to, hey, X patient has this finding. Can you demonstrate that to me? Can you help me understand the differential for what that means? This patient has diplopia. Can you show me how to evaluate a patient with diplopia? That is totally within grounds as a medical student. I think you're here to learn. And when you have specific targeted questions, the people who are engaging in your education can answer those and, and they want to help you when you're interested in them. So spending time on your notes, I, I was a medical student not too long ago. I know that writing a note can sometimes feel like you're just typing and typing endlessly and you're not really sure where that goes and what that's used for, but it's actually amazing practice for when you're 
a physician and when you're a resident and someone asks you, why do you think what you think, right? Why is this person who's coming in with this? What is your differential? And what are you going to order? And how are you going to explore that? And what makes this more or less likely? Um, and writing a note is really the best way to practice that. So, and so is participating in sign out. Um, I think to, to tell another physician what you're worried about, what your impression of a patient is, causes you to really have to narrow and form your thoughts. So lots of ways, I think, just generally as a medical student to be involved in any clerkship, not necessarily unique to neurology. Now, I will tell you that to give broad advice for neurology clerkship is hard, right? Because neurology clerkships can vary in length. They can be mandatory third-year clerkships, or they can be fourth-year clerkships. Some people have them elective. And What's amazing about neurology, and I will make the comment that there's as much diversity within neurology and its subspecialties as there is within internal medicine and its subspecialties. And people will kind of like scratch their chin there and say, really? But if you think you could be an outpatient general neurologist, you could see predominantly headache, or you could be an inpatient neurointensivist and work in the neuro ICU. You could be an inpatient consult neurologist and never be the primary team for a patient, but provide your consulting expertise. Or you could be outpatient and be in a subspecialty clinic. You could practice exclusively multidisciplinary clinic and take care of patients with ALS, right? So there, there are lots and lots of diverse opportunities as a neurologist. And because of that, you all will have diverse training opportunities as a medical student within neurology. I think most commonly, students will find themselves on consult services in the inpatient setting potentially on neurovascular or stroke services in the inpatient setting, and then probably an outpatient general neurology, but you might have some of these other things sprinkled in as well. Okay, so the cornerstone of your neurology rotation, regardless of what field you're going into and regardless of what practice setting you're going to be entering, is to learn the neurologic exam. And the reason that this is so important, and I think that for every student who I interact with, I hope that they feel more comfortable with the neurologic exam. There is a term that was coined, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s called neurophobia, and it's this concept that out of all of the fields of medicine, medical students and practicing physicians are terrified of neurology, that they think that it's esoteric and complex, and they are afraid when people have neurologic signs and symptoms, and they don't know what to do, and the goal of an academic neurologist is to make sure that that person is not Right? So if 50% of students are terrified of neurology, I hope that number goes down over the years. Use your rotation to curb that anxiety about seeing a neurologic patient and doing a good neurologic exam. So I'm just going to quickly go through some broad pearls, I think, in organizing your thought and your approach to the neurologic exam. So the first thing that we don't often think about is mental status. Right? So we don't typically think of uh, assessing a patient's mental status as part of our physical exam, but this can be the most important part. So a lot of us are very comfortable with saying that someone is alert and oriented times four, maybe not necessarily ever expanding farther than that or thinking what goes into our cognition as human beings beyond our alertness, how awake we are, and whether or not we know where we are and know what our name is. So you don't have to have every patient show you that they can write, show you that they can read, do complex arithmetic, but when appropriate, it is helpful to see if patients have abnormalities of their visuospatial abilities. If we're talking about somebody who may be under the primary investigation for a dementia, they might have 
fine memory. They might be alert, they might be oriented, but they may not be able to identify objects in space. And that is something that you're never gonna notice in a conversation with a patient unless you look for it. So mental status exam can be incredibly important and something that these tools that I've listed, this is not an exhaustive list, but the mini mental status exam is helpful. The MOCA, if your institution has the access to that, and that's also getting some uh, press currently, um, you can find the MOCA all over the news right now. The MINICOG is a much shorter bedside test that can help you screen patients. Um, and then the CAM, which also can help you for the very common inpatient uh, delirium consult. So the next part of my exam, and I'm going to say go through a very prescriptive order here because I think that that's going to help you organize your thoughts when you go see a patient, is to evaluate their cranial nerves. And you will very, and on your neurorotation, I can almost promise you that the first time you present a patient, just saying that cranial nerve two through 12 are intact is going to be insufficient to your resident or your attending. And that's one, because we want to make sure you understand what cranial nerves you're testing. I think if I have a student say that, oh, two through 12 were intact, I would say, well, what did cranial nerve nine do on your exam, right? And not to be mean, but to make sure that you knew that when you were assessing someone's palatal rise, or if you tested gag reflex in someone who was going undergoing a brain death exam, that you knew what you were doing and then you could report your findings, right? So cranial nerve two being the optic nerve, I think you could say I attempted a fundoscopic exam and I didn't notice any papilledema on my fundoscopic exam. I tested the patient's visual fields and I found their visual fields to be intact. And I also found that their pupils were four millimeters and reacted briskly to light and accommodation, right? So that all could go under your description of your cranial nerve two exam. And you can do that for each of the cranial nerves and it will help you when you're studying to make sure that you know what each nerve is and what you're testing. The next part of your exam is gonna be the motor exam and understanding that, right? So if you think about upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron lesions, right? One of the things that would help you is whether or not it's atrophy. Right? So just commenting on whether or not the muscles seem to have normal bulk is a helpful exam finding, right? Or if I notice that someone has thenar atrophy in my exam evaluating for carpal tunnel, that is a helpful clinical finding for me, as well as tone, right? So whether or not that's an upper motor neuron. So these are all going to be part of your motor exam. And then power. And this is something where I think that you will have different styles depending on different attendings or different residents. So some will just want to say that you had equal strength right and left and that you were able to resist me, right? So if you're pushing down on my hand and you can resist my strength, that's normal. The numbers that we use, right, zero, one, two, three, four, five, all have meaning. And so you can look up and you, if you're going to use them, I would say, so two out of five strength means that the patient cannot overcome gravity. So if this was their leg laying on the bed, they couldn't lift it off the bed at all, but they could move it in the horizontal plane on the bed, right? So not enough strength to overcome gravity itself, but enough strength to move. I'm going to answer this question in the chat about cranial nerves. Which should we test in the standard exam? Because testing all of them would take a long time. And that is a great question that's going to point to the larger thing that I would say about one, the primary evaluation of a patient, two, how do you pre-round on patients who have neurologic conditions, right? Because a lot of you will see a patient, maybe admit them, and then follow them each day. Are you going to do a full 
sensory exam where you're going to light touch, pinprick each distribution of the trigeminal nerve every day? I don't think so. I think in your primary screening evaluation of a patient, let's say that you have a patient who's coming in for a stroke, right? You should be evaluating each cranial nerve. And there are, I think, ways that you can do things more quickly and you'll get a style the more comfortable you are with an exam. I think a pupillary exam, uh, I like to say that your visual field testing exam, extraocular movement exam, we're already through six. I can do a quick sensory exam for five, right? For seven, I can do a couple facial movements and that will help me do seven. I don't commonly test taste or sensation to the anterior tongue for seven. So there are parts of the exam that are help you unless you're looking for them. Eight, you can do a quick finger rub, ear, ear. Nine and 10, you can do a palatal reflex. 11 doesn't, you can to have shoulder shrug to test 11, you can do some face turn to test 11, and then 12, you can have them protrude their tongue. I think you could do a screening cranial nerve exam in just a couple minutes, right? To do something super thorough. If a patient has a complaint that makes you worry, you should do a more thorough exam, but you can move through most of these very quickly. And then when you round on the patient, you should just be checking the things that you're concerned for. Reflex exam, again, kind of in the same, I think that every time you round on a patient, you don't necessarily have to check every single one of their reflexes, but if you are going to evaluate a patient who might have lower back pain, right, I would say your lower extremity reflexes are going to be incredibly important for that person or someone who has neck pain and you're concerned for a cervical myelopathy, right, to test reflexes in the upper and lower extremities, very important. You don't need to do frontal release reflexes in every patient you see, but if you're concerned with someone having a frontal lobe disorder, you should add those. So what I love about the neurologic exam is that you can cater it to what you're looking for, right? And you can show your interest in your knowledge as a student by saying, yeah, I attempted this and I, I, I was worried about this. So I did this exam maneuver and it showed me this. The next thing would be the sensory exam. And this gets the exact same feedback, I think, as the cranial nerves and the motor exam. Do I need to do a full sensory exam with every modality on every patient? No, not necessarily, right? In the inpatient setting, someone who's here for meningitis may not need to be tested for proprioceptive sense, vibratory sense, temperature, and pain in all extremities, right? You might do a screening exam to make sure the patient doesn't have lateralizing symptoms, that they feel things the same on both sides. But if someone is presenting for loss of sensation over the lateral aspect of their foot, you might have to do a pretty detailed pinprick exam to figure out, is this dermatomal? Is this peripheral nerve? And then go from there in your differential. So it, it, I like to think of it as like, these are all the general buckets of your physical exam. And then you have to be thoughtful about what you want to pull from each bucket. And that's what's fun about it. The cerebellar exam, I would say, is a great one to attempt in most patients, right? So if, but if a patient is weak on the right side, you're going to have a very hard time getting them to do appropriate finger to nose testing on the right. And you say that, right? I, my exam for ataxia was limited by weakness. And so making sure that you're testing what you want to be testing. Um, gait, also hard to do. Very hard to have most patients walk in the hospital, but when you can do it and you can make commentary on it, I think that like, for Parkinson's disease, if you're seeing that in the outpatient setting, having a patient walk down the hall is a, a important part of your physical exam. 
And then the last thing I'll mention is like, do you want to add anything else, right? Do you want to bring any other buckets in? So if a patient has myasthenia gravis, right? And you've tested weakness and we talk about repetitive nerve stimulation to diagnose myasthenia, but how do you do that as a student at the bedside, right? So maybe you've learned to have a patient with myasthenia look up at your finger and see if you can elicit ptosis or put ice packs on. So what special tests can you do that help you figure out what this patient has. I love neurology because it's so centered in the physical exam. For Parkinson's disease, right? Do the patients have cogwheeling rigidity? Can you make the cogwheeling rigidity worse by provoking it on the other side or having them distract themselves on the other side? So how can you use special physical exam maneuvers to aid your diagnosis? Okay, that was a lot about the physical exam. And the reason that I think that's so important is because when you're on a clerkship, studying is hard, right? And specifically with neurology, many of you took neuroanatomy in the first or second year of your preclinical coursework. And uh, a lot of that neuroanatomy came in and then left as quickly as you learned it. And neurology is usually a very long preclinical course for a lot of people. And it can be intimidating to see a patient who has neurologic findings and not be able to localize where that is. But you don't have to remember all of the arteries, all of the really subtle abnormalities of the brachial plexus. I think if you know your long track anatomy, right, so your spinothalamic track, your dorsal columns, and then your lateral corticospinal track, those three that I think everyone, you know, I mean, learn for primarily for step one, but mostly in your neuroanatomy course, that when a patient has weakness, you are able to at least think of a differential that extends all the way up from the motor cortex down through the posterior limb of the internal capsule, running along the anterior part of the brainstem, right, decussating in the medulla, and then moving down the lateral part of the spinal cord, out the ventral horn of the spinal cord, through a peripheral nerve, and then to the muscle, right? So if a patient has weakness in their arm, you have a huge differential for what that means just with one anatomic fact. So don't be intimidated by all there is that you don't know about neurology and center yourself on that basic neurology that holds all of this together. Your exam at that point is studying every day. So we'll talk, I'll talk about cranial nerve three at some point, because that's one of my favorite things to teach as a tutor. It's so commonly tested and it really helps me explain central and peripheral neuroanatomy localization. I'll talk about some other resources to use other than your um, exam every day, right? Rather than, okay, so I get it. Learning from patients is awesome, but what can I do off the words to make that patient encounter less intimidating? So unlike step one, where I think you, you very much get, you know what I mean, uh, advised for a few different resources, how you approach step two is going to be informed or shelf exams by what your preferences are. Some people will be like, yeah, I did really well with textbooks and review books. Some people will say, no, I just want question banks. Um, some people are very video based. So there's not a prescriptive way that you have to do this. Um, so you should be prioritizing things that are active, right? From a educational model and from a learning standpoint, I would say I would recommend question banks and flashcards over reading text over and over and over and hoping that some of that text sticks. Um, applying your knowledge on the wards, right? So uh, attending who are maybe more Socratic and ask questions out loud, it can be embarrassing. 
right? To not know, but it's the best way of making sure that you can bring that information out of your brain when you need it, which is what you need on test day. And then, like I mentioned, there's so much neuroanatomy. Cramming is, is just not going to be beneficial for you. I think that many people can, you can cram some certain parts of this, but I want you to remember this long-term so that when you're practicing as a pediatrician and you have a child that has a eye movement abnormality, that it's not terrifying to you, that you don't need to immediately refer that child to neurology, that you have a couple first steps that you can do for that child, decide, is this scary and this is an emergency, or can I hang on to this for a little bit, right? That's what we want to do in learning about other people's fields. Okay, so finding pockets of time to study. Again, not unique to this clerkship, right? Some people will have more busy inpatient services. Some patient, people will have um, outpatient services where maybe while the attending is documenting a note or making a call that there's going to be time for you to study. So I recommend having something with you all the time, right? So we'll talk about maybe some apps on your phone or if you just have some quick notes. Um, also be intentional about what you're choosing to study. I think that like it can be easy to study some zebras, right? But make sure you have the bread and butter algorithms cold. Step two tends to be a little more algorithmic than step one, which is very fact-based. Um, if you can do this, this is going to be the most helpful thing. I mentioned that if a patient has right arm weakness, thinking about could this be motor cortex? Could this be anywhere along that axis? Can you predict where that patient's weakness is coming from while their MRI is pending? That is the best way to study and show that you know your neuroanatomy. So it's very easy to look at the MRI, look at the radiologist read and say, yep, there's a, there's a stroke. Like I knew it, like that's what it was. But it's a little harder to say, okay, what about my exam makes me worried about this place and not. And that's a lot of what these test questions will simulate as well. So stay connected to us, right? I think that it's sometimes the medical student resident relationship is hard. And I'm having medical students on my team now. I'm, I'm saying, hey, how can I help you, right? How today can I be involved in your learning alongside patient care? And the better you have those connections, I think you're going to get really positive experiences. Neurologists, I think, love to teach. Just as a general field of neurology, people tend to like to pass on the neurologic exam. So take advantage of that. Your institution, right, whether you're virtual clerkship, you will likely have something very specific to your clerkship that you should study. I think I always like to remind students when I'm tutoring them that if it's not in a board review book, that doesn't mean you don't need to know it. It just means that it's if the board review book is paying for a a couple hundred thousand words, they didn't choose those words because they show up the least commonly, but that doesn't mean you won't be tested on it, right? So be curious, read broadly, but make sure you know the core stuff. And that gets me into how many resources should you use as a clerkship student? And I have some strong opinions on that. And so we'll talk through like all of the options available to you. And then I can make some personal recommendations, some recommendations kind of on behalf of the company who's been doing this for so long. The first thing I'll tell you is don't feel like you have to get this book, right? I put this here because I love this book. This is what me, Michael, as a neurology dork, read for fun, right? So these cases are going to be descriptive in what the patient presents with. So I have a 45-year-old lady who presents with horizontal diplopia, and then it will walk through the relevant neuroanatomy, talk about your differential, provocative physical exam maneuvers to help you figure out what that means, and then give you the answer, right? Many of you may have used this preclinically. 
This is not a particularly shelf-directed book, but some of the your main resource for this shelf and for step two in neurology is going to be UWorld. I think almost universally UWorld is the recommended as the best question bank, and many students will tell you, yeah, I used a lot of resources for step one. I really only required UWorld for step two, and I, it's definitely been my experience. Um, I think it's nice to have some other tech alongside, right? But UWorld should be the quarterback of your study experience for your shelf exams, as well as your step two preparation. The next thing I would think about is, okay, I have a question bank. Do I have a textbook of some sort? Do I have something that I can read and get deeper information on a particular topic if I want it? And that's going to be something like blueprints, something like case files, something like pretest. I think in the neurology world, blueprints might be very in-depth. You can split by chapter. Hey, I want to go read about seizures today. I saw a patient who had epilepsy and I want to read a little bit more about seizures. The next being like some sort of video-based learning, right? Online med ed for step two being the flagship video-based learning. How do I approach someone who had syncope, right? So what do I need to think about in someone who lost consciousness? There are other videos out there. I think if you are a video-based learner, that should be central to your preparation. And then the last one, it makes to come back, I think here more than other shelves, first aid for step one is awesome. There are so many quick, hey, like, I don't know if I have post-stroke thalamic pain, right? So if I have really pain, I have pain on half my body after I have a stroke, right? First aid does a really good job of just giving you those one-line vignettes for, I can't pronounce it, but maybe dejeren russi syndrome, right? My French is off, but can you quickly identify the situation in which, and first aid for step one has lots of those real nice shortcuts. So, and then first aid for step two, again, having the more kind of detailed like algorithm and how do you approach uh, treatment for a migraine, right? Things like that. So supplementary files, I mentioned those. I think as a supplementary question bank, AMBOSS has very rapidly been um, popular. I think for my experience, the AMBOSS questions are so thorough, they tend to be a little harder, I would say, than um, the step two level, but that doesn't mean they're not good. They're excellent, but I think a lot of students will take AMBOSS questions and then be upset with their scores. Um, and I don't want you to do that. I want you to think about it like, hey, this is supposed to be helping me learn, not supposed to be testing me or showing me my, my value as a student here. And then recognizing that books for internal medicine commonly have neurology chapters and step up to medicine being something that Moses mentioned in the internal medicine, know thy shelf and has a great chapter on neurology as well. Okay. We've gone over this for the most part, right? So there's less emphasis on the basic science. I think I'm less likely to ask you about the mechanism of denepazil and instead ask you like what type of dementia I'm ready to prescribe denepazil for in the greater emphasis on complex diagnoses, right? So if I have a patient with ascending weakness in their leg two weeks after they have bloody diarrhea, right? I think most people will have that um, illness script in their mind of Guillain-Barre, but then when that recurs over time, right? So how does, when does acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy become chronic demyelinating polyneuropathy, right? Inflammatory CIDP. And how can you relate what you've already learned at a basic level to something more complex? And how do you treat it when you IVIG, plasmapheresis? How does that make sense with a mechanism? The more you do things like that, I think the more you'll be prepared to tackle complex patients and complex questions. And then the next step management questions that are very characteristic of step two, um, 
it's the, the evolution of your learning from step one. So yeah, you can diagnose them. Yes, you know the pathophysiology, but what should you do for them? How do you treat them? And what's appropriate? Should you do an MRI or should you not? That And that gets hard. So you have to know your algorithms. I listed some diseases to know here. Obviously, there are so many neurologic conditions to cover. What I tried to do was bold the ones that you're going to commonly see in the inpatient setting, right? Stroke, seizures, it can be an inpatient condition. Dementia is going to affect most of your patients, but not often is going to be their primary reason for being in the hospital. And then syncope is an incredibly common inpatient condition. And then I tried to italicize what I could almost promise you you'll see in an outpatient general neurology clinic, which would be headache and dementia. I think if you were in a clinic that saw a lot of movement disorders like Parkinson's disease, you would very likely see that. You'll likely see some post-stroke patients, but managing post-stroke and secondary prevention and acute stroke are very different things. Okay. I mentioned that UWorld is obviously the, the number one recommendation, I think, of any of our tutors um, in the center of your study plan. It's hard as a ward student, right, to have your laptop, but I think um, using the UWorld app to drill yourself um, on the wards can be really helpful. I, as a resident, would love if a student came up to me and said, hey, I got this UWorld question wrong. Can you help me understand? Because I think that we can offer some clinical context. I worked with a student this morning who had missed a question on a practice test about a patient who had um, a brain bleed. And she had said to me, hey, Michael, how can I tell when someone's brain bleed is from a ruptured aneurysm or from an AVM? And what are the differences and what's going to show up in a question? And I loved that. That gave me a specific identifiable thing to teach that student. So maybe if your resident's busy with patient care, that may not be appropriate. But if there's teaching and you missed a question on a spinal epidural abscess, you might say, hey, can we go through that? Right? Can that be a topic that I want to learn about this week? So use your teaching on the wards to help you in your, your study plan. Okay, and then this also extends to flashcards, right? So being very popular option for your mobile device. So making flashcards from your UWorld and Corex is becoming incredibly common and popular, right? Obviously using Anki as its own app and borrowing decks. I think that uh, I will always, as a tutor, defer. I hate to refer to the internet for a lot of things, but usually the internet does a great job, particularly Reddit, in cultivating Anki decks. And then I do like on UWorld, particularly flagging images. I think it's important for neurology to understand your images. So I have this image here. I would actually love if someone in the chat wants to go ahead and diagnose this person off this. You can tell me what kind of study this is. Is this a CT, an MRI, and then what does it show? Or is it a normal image? CT, excellent. I agree. So I have very bright bone in the skull. It does show a bleed. Shows a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Excellent, right? This is one of the images that I think a lot of students would look at this CT and say, well, that looks pretty normal to me. I don't see anything super bright white. I don't see anything. I don't see a large shift. I don't see a subdural. I don't see an epidural. This is a more subtle radiographic finding, right? But instead to see here, right? So I have the sort of outlined Mickey Mouse ears of the midbrain. I have blood. I have effacement of my Solsi, I have this cisternal right bleed. So this is a good image for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Excellent, excellent, excellent. But you want to make sure that when you see a head CT scan and a question and someone is obtunded and it looks normal to you, that you're not missing a subarachnoid bleed. 
So another good resource, I think, um, if you are someone who both likes text and likes questions, are these case files or the pretest. So case files does have a couple of good standalone topics. I think make sure that there's one for neurology, which is going to be really helpful for you from a clinical neurology standpoint, right? So what are the drugs you use to treat myasthenia gravis or ALS, or what are the clinical presentations of ALS? And then also one for neuroscience. So what are the different types of pain? How does olfaction work, right? What are the pathways for visual input, rods and cones, right? So more of a primary neuroscience approach. Both are helpful to your learning. Case Files Neurology is going to be more step two and shelf-based. I think Case Files Neuroscience is often going to be very helpful for step one topics. And then they have short questions at the end that are not USMLE style with patient vignettes, but they do a really nice job of covering a broad topics to test your understanding. Okay, I've mentioned all these other topics, all these other ones. I want to throw a shout out to the American Academy of Neurology, which is free to join as a student. And they do have a four-part shelf review for the NeuroShelf that I personally use and can recommend. Uh, it was authored by Dr. Anderson out of the University of Kansas. It's four PowerPoints. They are very succinct. They go through common conditions, tested. So I thought that that was a great use of my time. If you're looking for something, right, to download those PowerPoints and just move through those. There's also a lot of educational materials available outside of uh, core step preparation materials. So I will go through some of those now. The American Academy of Neurology also has a podcast that will take a deep dive into a topic that I find very interesting. Um, they also have what's cool, and I think it was I was skeptical at first in the podcast world, they'll do a one-minute podcast on a topic. So Parkinson's and depression. And the point of this is to like add it to your Amazon Echo in the morning, right? While you're brushing your teeth, I'm going to listen to the one minute neurology podcast. So add it to your daily routine so that you get like micro learning and that it's not overwhelming to say, yeah, I have to sit down and do this, 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 right? So how can you add one minute into your routine each day to learn a fact, right? You may or may not be tested on that fact, but when you are, you're going to be so happy that you did something so simple. Another podcast that I like is the Brainwaves podcast. Um, they have several different series and some of them will be very in depth and very niche neurology that I'd love if you were interested in and wanted to listen to, but then they do have some that are teaching through clinical cases, right? So how to approach someone who has increased number of falls, right? Which very well, very well may be from weakness, from spinal stenosis, or it might be Parkinson's or all kinds of things that might go into this patient having an increased number of falls. And how do you approach that? I think adds to your clinical acumen as a future physician and to your studying acumen in helping you remember what the signs and symptoms of each of these conditions are. I like Twitter. I think Twitter has re-emerged from a social media perspective into an educational media perspective to also get what I reference in micro-learning, so short, um, succinct teaching points. There are a couple of neurologists who I very much idolize on Twitter and I think do an excellent job um, teaching. So one of them is Dr. Tracy Milligan um, at Brigham Women's Hospital, who will do a daily morning report. She'll post a, a vignette and will kind of tweet along with, hey, what tests do you want to order? And it's really helpful for helping localize your neurologic syndromes. Um, and then Dr. Berkowitz also has an end neurophobia, like I mentioned, where he'll do a tutorial and he'll do a thread of tweets. 
teaching a very commonly tested topic. There are so many others that you'll find if you uh, enter this med Twitter world, which is why I like it so much. And I would also say it's hard to study something that you're not interested in, but pique your interest in how this applies to the specialty if you've chosen one. So undoubtedly as a medicine physician, you'll do this. Pediatric neurology is an important part of this exam, but also a large part of peds. OBGYN, I think understanding um, seizure management, right? And if I'm talking neural tube defects, right? My anti-epileptics are going to be amongst my largest culprits in causing neural tube defects, but also how do I manage migraine in pregnancy? Um, how does MS, right? So MS being a disease that commonly affects women of childbearing age. So there are lots of ways for you to be peripherally interested in neurologic topics, even if neurology is not your field of choice. Radiology has amazing correlates, right? Neuroradiology being incredibly complicated field. There's great websites for neuroradiology teaching. And then also surgery, right? So from a peripheral anatomy perspective, I think uh, vascular surgery has great correlates here. I mean, the vascular surgeons of the room, uh, you're going to have to know the brachial plexus. Like, so there are, there are great ties with neurology being a whole body specialty to anything you may want to do with your career. So it's worth investing time in learning. Okay, I've talked so much. My closing advice for you as med students, like on your journey, wherever that is, is you've done an amazing job, right? You are in this small percentage of people who are this far along the journey. It's very humbling, I think, to know so much and be constantly reminded that there's so much more to know. That's a really hard balance. So when I talk about this growth mindset, it's not, oh man, I'm not a good student because I don't know X, Y, Z. It's, hey, this is so exciting. There's so much more for me to know. Like, let me just bite into that. I will commonly with my students who I tutor individually, draw them a circle and say, okay, if this box represents all of the knowledge in the world and your circle looks this big, you're only touching a small amount of knowledge that you don't realize you don't know. As you grow more and you learn more and your knowledge increases, the circumference of the circle, you're realizing how much it, there is left in the world that you don't know. That feels bad as a student. It feels scary, but it's actually a good thing. So try and remind yourself that not knowing things is not always a personal deficit, right? I think that that will be so helpful for your mental health moving forward and also help you approach learning with the vigor that maybe you did before you had to read thousands and thousands of pages as a medical student. With that in mind, be confident. You're doing great. I think that everyone along your journey hopefully will want to support you, whether that be professionally or personally. Um, we at Med School Tutors have so much experience in both. And I wanted to quickly talk about kind of what it looks like for me to work as a student, work with a student. Um, and then also all the other services that you kind of get wrapped up in as someone who signs on with med school tutors. So with my students, I will do custom study schedules for them. We'll do one-on-one -on -one and it'll look very different depending on the student's preferences. Sometimes we'll do questions together and uh, show me their primary thought process. How are you approaching this? Um, do lecture style teaching on some things um, and just chatting and saying, hey, how's this going? You know what I mean? What went well today? Like, did you feel like you got 
out all the effort you put in this week. Um, and having someone to balance those ideas off is, is really great. I think both in my own personal life, but then also I can see it in the students that we work with. And then with that, it's not just me as a tutor. There are so many tutors that I've learned from, and you have this kind of collective experience of the company. And then everyone that works at headquarters that also is checking in with students and making sure that the tutors know everything about the students and are ready to approach that student in the best personalized way for them. So we work with everyone along all aspects of the continuum of medical education, pre-med to resident. And I think that's all I have for that. So I would be so happy to answer any questions. Um, you're welcome to type them in the chat and I will probably address them out loud because that's faster than typing. Is neuro-DO friendly? Um, yeah, I think that, so what I love about neurology as a, as a field, right, so talking about applying into neurology, which I think is totally different um, versus like studying for a neurology shelf and approaching a neurology clerkship. Uh, we have people who will do some residency counseling here at MST, but I will offer just general what I love about neurology is how diverse the field is. So the field has excellent um, representation in men and women. The field, I think, among neurology and pathology, I think have the highest um, percentage of international medical graduates represented. Um, I think in terms of DO applications right now that there's a common match for the MD and the DO students, right? I met several, I mean, amazing DO applicants on the interview trail last year so. In terms of the field as a whole, we are commonly linked by our love of neurology and our desire to care for patients with neurologic disorders, and everything else is very much celebrated. So I think that in terms of like being a student wanting to go into neurology, you will find someone who wants you. Any advice to study, to prepare for the rotation, to put me ahead, make me more likely to stand out specifically in neurology? Uh, I'm gonna say yes and no at the same time, right? So I, I always hesitate to give students, you know what I mean? Like, hey, you have to do this in advance. Um, if you show up on day one and you don't have this, you're gonna be behind because I think that generates this like awful culture in medicine that you don't ever get to rest. So that you finish your last rotation and you have to spend the whole weekend, the week before, you know what I mean? Getting ready for the next one. I think if your interest shines, you will find that you are reading neurology journals the weekend. You know what I mean? Things are going to pop up and that's going to show through on your rotation. And that's what really matters. Um, I would be more interested in working with a student who wanted to come do an exam and see a patient than one who knew all of the very Socratic uh, questions I asked aloud. I think both are great. Um, but the person who wants to sit with the patient who is newly diagnosed with ALS and talk through that with them and then talk with me after and debrief about what that means for that person and how they're going to be involved in their care moving forward means more than someone who knows what really is all is. But that, that's my approach to it as a, as a resident and also as a tutor. Oh, good resources for neurologic exam. I, um, there's lots of videos out there. There is a teaching series that on, I mentioned Dr. Tracy Milligan on Twitter that she has uh, posted in the past that she authored, and I don't remember which website houses that. The American Academy of Neurology also has like very short videos on like evaluating foot drop 
or evaluating diplopia and that I find to be so incredibly helpful for very small, or what does the Parkinson's exam look like? Um, to maybe list one other thing, the Stanford 25 medicine series has a great video on uh, assessing patient gait that I've watched several times. So I would encourage you just to cast a big net and see what educational format is teaching you um, and then practice, right? So it, watching a video is great, but go into clinic and watch your patients walk, right? And then you don't have to say, oh, I know that that is X gate when they have this disorder, right? You can just say that gate's not normal. Can someone help, un help me understand why, right? And then add to your learning like that. Don't expect to be an expert out of the gate. All right. Uh, that is all the questions. I had so much fun. I hope that you all are a little less intimidated by neurology. I don't want you to be. I want you to love neurology and understand how it is going to be so important to your career as a physician. I want all of you to be neurologists, but I understand that if uh, something else catches your eye, I hope that you remember this, that you have great success in your studies and your test, but also a great career as a doctor. So, so thanks everybody. We hope this was helpful and that it took some of the guesswork out of the equation for you. If you have any questions or would like one-on-one -on -one tutoring, get in touch with us via our website, medschooltutors.com, via email at hq at medschooltutors.com, or give us a call, if you're old school like that, at 212-327-0098. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and review us on your podcast app. And if you want more helpful, free information, visit our blog, check us out on social media at MedSchoolTutors, or visit our forum at usmletutors.com. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>